Well, we continue on in our study of the Beatitudes as kingdom habits of the heart, and our focus this morning is on the sixth Beatitude, blessed are, blessed are those with the pure heart, for they shall see God. But um, if you look on page 10 of our worship folder, you'll see um, our scripture, and I'll read the whole section of this chapter. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, are, who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall see, receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in, is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Thanks be to God. Oh, I'm sorry. The word of the Lord. I took your line. <laughs> Pray with me. Father, um, we thank you for your word. Um, we ask that you would send your spirit in our midst today. Um, that we might ascend the mountain, that we might see you clearly, Lord, and that we might have pure hearts. Give us a, a vision and a picture of the person of Jesus Christ this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. What does it mean to see God? The Russian astronaut Yuri Gagarin in 1961 was the first man to ever make it into space. And after his return, the Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev, Khrushchev said, Gagarin flew into space but didn't see any God there. Time magazine approached C.S. Lewis, who is a great Christian apologist of that time, and asked him to respond to what the Russians claimed about not seeing God when they went into space. And Lewis wrote this remarkable little essay called The Seeing Eye, in which his main argument was to say that God is not an object like ordinary objects. God is not a thing to which you see things. You cannot perceive God in the same way that you might see the sun, the moon, or the stars. 
And Lewis says this, and this is in your reflection page of your worship folder. Lewis says this is quite profound. Looking for God or heaven by exploring space is like reading all of Shakespeare or seeing all of Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters or Stratford as one of the places. Shakespeare is, in one sense, present at every moment in every play, but he is never present in the same way as Falstaff or Lady Macbeth. Nor is he diffused through the play like a gas. My point is that if God does not exist, says Lewis, if God does exist, he is related to the universe more as an author is related to a play than as one object in the universe is related to another. According to Lewis, the Russian view of God, in the words of Khrushchev and Gagarin, was rather primitive and simplistic. They imagined that God, if God existed, would be, um, show up eventually as an object that we could see like a constellation or a planet. But from the beginning to the end of the Bible, God is depicted as the creator God. And as the creator God, God is utterly transcendent, distinct, independent from all that he has made. God is not a thing or an object. God is utterly unique and singular mysterious, beyond all existences and substances as we know them. The divine nature is invisible and spiritual. It doesn't have a body, which is why it cannot be depicted properly in any form. And this, of course, is the reason behind the second commandment, which warns the people, warns us not to make graven images of God. You shall not make any graven images. But this is precisely what the surrounding nations did with their gods. They made images. And the God of Israel, Yahweh, is unique in that he prohibits all images of himself. Moses, speaking to the people in the book of Deuteronomy, with the shadow of the golden calf, if you remember, when the people made an image and bowed down and worshipped it, Moses speaks to the people in Deuteronomy. He says this in Deuteronomy 4. He says, Remember, remember how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, and you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of the heavens, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you but saw no form. There was only a voice. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on that day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb. Out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly, by making a carved image of yourselves in the form of any figure. The God of the Bible is a God that is so 
set apart and transcendent and mysterious and singularly one that no form or image could ever adequately capture all that he is without dragging him down. And yet even though the divine nature cannot be captured or depicted through creaturely forms, that does not mean that God and the reality of God cannot be known or seen. Paul the Apostle in Romans 1, in fact, argues the opposite. He says that God has always been plain to us. He's always been known. Quote, he says, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that he has made. And then, of course, for Paul in this argument, he goes on to say that because of that reality, we are without excuse. Now, if God is invisible without form, beyond all being, and yet has been clearly perceived since the creation of the world, what exactly does it mean to see God? And how do we account for the fact that many deny that they do not see God, that God is not real? The answer, I think, at least part of the answer, is found in this beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, friends, it is not with the eyes that we see. It is with the heart. It is not the eyes that are the organ of perception of who God is and what God is. Rather, it is the heart. The heart is the organ of perception. This is, again, C.S. Lewis's very point when he says that, he goes on to say that to some, God is discoverable everywhere. To others, nowhere. Those who do not find God on earth are unlikely to find him in space. But send a saint up in a spaceship, and he will see God in space as much as he saw God on earth. Much depends on the seeing eye. Or you could say, in, in Jesus' language, much depends on the seeing heart. Seeing God is not a matter... <clears throat> seeing God is not a matter of gazing on him with our eyes, but having a sense of his presence and reality through our hearts. The problem, then, is not um, a problem of the eyes. It's the problem of the heart. It's not a scientific problem. It's a moral and a spiritual problem when we don't see God. When we don't see God, our hearts are unpure. You cannot see God if you do not love God. Think of the heart as a window. A th window through which we see and discern the presence of God in the universe. But when our hearts are unclean, when our hearts are impure, it's like a windshield, you know, that's covered with, with, with ice and salt and the smear. And what you look and all you see is a sort of opaque whiteness. And that's what it's like. This, I think, raises some questions for us. Well, what is the heart? And why is the heart so important for seeing? What is the heart? Heart in the Bible refers to the center of a person. Jesus says, just in the next chapter over, in chapter 6, he says, where your heart is, there your 
treasure, I'm sorry, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, the main function of the heart is in loving. To know the heart is to know the essence of a person, to know what they value, to know what they love. You might think of the heart as kind of like the central command center of the person. From the heart come the directions of our lives, the commands, the motivations. From the heart, life goals are set. From the heart, our identities are shaped and formed around the things that our hearts attach themselves to and love. Again, the heart is the center of what it means to be a person, which is why Jesus is always talking about the heart. He wants to get to the center of the person. Now, this should be pretty familiar to most of you, the idea of the heart understood in this way. But how exactly does the heart uh, factor into how we see, into our perception of the world and of God? And the reason is this. It's because, again, the heart has to do with our character. It has to do with what we love. And the reality is, is that we always interpret the world through the things that we love. We always interpret the world through the things that we love. Love determines how we see, what we see, and what we don't see. Love is a lens that interprets all that comes at us. And Jesus makes precisely this point in chapter 6. If you have a Bible and you're following along, I, I encourage you to look there. I want to do a little exposition of this because I think it helps us understand what Jesus means in connecting purity of heart with seeing. Jesus says in um, Matthew chapter 6, this is still Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. To love something is to treasure it, to be attached to it, to let it set the direction of your life, to impact how and who you are. So when Jesus contrasts earthly treasures with heavenly treasures, what he's saying is, if you set your heart on the things of God, on God, the love of God will direct the course of your life in a way that doesn't become vulnerable to all the mortal things like decay and thieves and rust. To set your heart on God, to make God the treasure of your life, is it, what he means by that is for, for, for God to be the focal love, in a sense, the mastering love. And when that happens, we become uh, people who see clearly. We become full of light. Now hang with me here. If you look at the next verses, it seems like an aside from what Jesus is talking about. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, this is, Jesus is, not, Jesus is still talking about the heart. 
and what the heart treasures. But then he shifts because what he wants us to see is that there is a connection between the things that we treasure and the things that we love and our eye, and whether it's a good eye or a bad eye. And you might even think of eye here as he's, Jesus is not using eye in a literal sense. He's using it more in the sense of, of the heart. Eye here is, is moral, it's spiritual. To have a good eye is basically to have a good heart. And when you have a good heart, you, your life and your body is full of light. But to have a bad eye is to have a bad heart, which means you're full of darkness. You might even paraphrase this, these verses this way. The heart is the lamp of the body. So if your heart is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your heart is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Jesus then continues on. These verses about seeing and the eye are kind of sandwiched between two verses about the heart and what we love. Jesus goes on right after that. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now what I want you to see, there's a lot going on in these verses, and I know this point might be a little bit subtle. But what I want you to see is this, is that what we love, what we treasure, what our hearts are attached to, determines how well and what we see. And if our hearts are attached to earthly things, as the mastering love of our life, we're not going to see God clearly. We're going to have a double vision. We're going to have something like a cataract on the eye or a cataract on the heart. Everything is cloudy. Now, no doubt you've heard this phrase, love is blind. And when we say that, we usually, usually mean it in a positive sense. Love is blind. In other words, when we love somebody so much, we're willing to overlook their faults or not see certain things. And at its best, this is an act of mercy and grace and love, that when we love somebody, we're willing to look aside from the things that do us harm or the problems. Love is blind, but the wrong love is blinding. Love is blind, but the wrong love is blinding. And a blinding love happens when we allow the mastering love of our life to be attached to what Jesus says are earthly treasures, rather than to heavenly treasures and the Lord himself. And the Bible has another category for this that mixes in to talk about these misguided loves. It is idolatry. Idolatry is simply to take a creature, a, a creaturely thing or form, and to make it into an ultimate thing. It is to treat something that might be good, like family or career or leisure, but to give ultimate significance to it that is saving. Martin Luther has the best definition of idolatry. He says a god, and he's talking about a god, he uses a small, a god is a term that we, a god is a term for that to which we are always looking for all good, and to, for that to which we find refuge in our need. A God is nothing else than to trust and to believe in that one with your whole heart, 
An idol, then, is anything that our heart clings to and finds comfort in and security in that is not the true God. An idol is anything we build our lives upon that is a substitute for God. And the reality is, is that all of us struggle with idols. Maybe not in the ancient sense where we really thought that this statue or figure could really bring you know, power and healing that we worshiped, but we all have functional idols, things in our life that, that function like idols. I've mentioned some of them already, like career or family or lifestyle or education or status or reputation. And when we have idolatry in our hearts, always, what it does is it creates impurity. It creates an impure heart because we have all these different loves that are jostling around, competing with one another, and we can't see clearly. All the purity laws in the Bible are given to teach the people of God what it means to cleanse their hearts from the influence of idols. To break free from the idols in our life, we need to have a pure heart. The greatest commandment, uh, which was part of our sacred, or our um, call to confession, obedience to that commandment is the essence of what it means to have a pure heart. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. To have a pure heart is to love God with all of your heart. To put it another way, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard defines purity of heart this way very simply. He said, purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. And that's what the great commandment teaches us about, is to will one thing, which is the love of God. And I, again, I want to come back to this idea of oneness. To be one... You know, the, the, the claim that the Lord your God is one means that there are no other gods. Only one God. Which means you shouldn't have multiple loves, but one love. And when we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, we become one. We become uh, our true selves, unified. See, to have an impure heart is to have a divided heart. Right? That's the essence of impurity, is to have a divided heart. To have a double heart or a triple heart, divided, competing and mutually exclusive loves in our life, which again just creates confusion in us. But the Lord calls us to oneness, calls us to clarity at the center of who we are through loving Him. One of the best uh, definitions for purity of heart is in Psalm 86, verse 11. And the psalmist is praying for a pure heart, and he says this, says, O oh Lord, teach me your way, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart, or I'm sorry, he says, untie my heart to fear your name. Untie my heart to fear your name. To love God with all of our hearts is to be untied from all other attachments that claim um, 
ultimate allegiance of our heart. What the psalmist is praying for is for a unified and undivided heart, one that is not tethered to things and objects, one that is set free in order to love and fear God. Love is something that we all believe exists, even though none of us can see it with our eyes. Love is something we all believe in. We all believe exists, even though we cannot see it with our eyes. But we do come to see and experience God in the same way. Even though we don't see God with our eyes, we can see Him with our hearts. We can see Him with love. The psalmist later, and this is our call to worship, Psalm 24, says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The one who loves God with all their heart, the one with a pure heart is the one who can ascend, the one who can see God clearly in his presence. Now, there is a real serious problem, though, with this. Perhaps you feel it already, and you're squirming. None of us has a very pure heart, even on our best day. Most of the time, our hearts feel divided. There are many things that claim our loves, that compete with God, even when we don't want them to. And so the idea of that I would have to have a pure heart in order to see God is a very discouraging thing because the idols are so strong. So what does it mean for us to hope in God, to see God? Everything I've said to you up to this point is um, good Old Testament theology of what it means to know and to love God. But this beatitude takes on a whole new meaning on the lips of Jesus. In fact, the whole beatitude focuses on his person, And if this are not so, I think we'd be left in despair because we all struggle to have pure hearts. Jesus uniquely fulfills both aspects of this beatitude. He supplies the purity that we lack. We are pure because we participate in his purity. But not only that, he, as Paul says, when we look at his face, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. In the Bible, ascending a mountain or a hill is always associated with going up into the presence of God. The temple was built on the mountain. Time and again, when you see uh, people in the Bible going to commune with God, it says they go up on the mountainside to be in his presence. You'll remember from our sacred reading in the story of Moses that Moses ascends Mount Sinai into the presence of God to behold God's glory, but also to receive the law. But no one else besides Moses was allowed to go up the mountain. In fact, it was penalty of death if they tried because of their impurity, because they were not holy. You remember that Moses comes back down, it's not in the story that we read this morning, but 
uh, Moses comes back down and his face is reflecting the glory of God. So much so that the people can hardly look at him and he has to wear a veil. Remember that Matthew presents Jesus to us as the new Moses. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that Jesus ascended the mountain and he called his disciples to him. See, here already Jesus is departing from Moses because when Moses went up the mountain, he received the law and the words of God, and then he had to come back down the mountain in order to deliver it to the people. But Jesus goes up the mountain and he calls his disciples to come with him. And this is important. Because as long as Jesus is at our side, as long as we are following closely to him, we can go up. We can travel up the mountainside into the presence of God. And the reason we can do that is because we become pure because of his purity. The book of Hebrews in chapter 1 talks about how Jesus, when he ascended on high, after he ascended, he made purifications for sins. And then he sat down at the right hand of the power on high. Brothers and sisters, we can ascend into the presence of God because Jesus himself has made purification for our sins. And that to be in him is to know his purity. You see a bit of a picture of what it will be like for us to be in the presence of God. Another foreshadowing in, later in the book of Matthew when Jesus goes up the mountainside and he brings Peter, James, and John with them. And before them, he meets Elijah and Moses, two men who spent a lot of times on mountains, communing with God. And it says, Matthew says this, um, Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like sun and his clothes became white as light. They saw Jesus in his glory. But again, he's nothing like Moses because when Moses came down the mountain glowing. He was merely reflecting glory. But when Jesus, his face shows, shines like the sun, he's not reflecting glory, he is glory. It is original to him because he is God. Such that to see Jesus is to see God. To see Jesus is to see his glory. You recall the conversation that Jesus had with Philip and his disciples in the Gospel of John. Philip asks Jesus, he says to him, Lord, show us the Father. If you show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. We'll be able to listen and, and be at peace. And Jesus says to him, Philip, have, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Friends, to see Jesus is to see the Father. Not just when he's on the mountaintop with the glory coming out of him, but even when he's in the valley. <laughs> even when you see, all you see is Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, who looks like a mere man. We see God, but not just God in his glory, but we see God's love, love in the flesh. Friends, the good news of the Gospels is that 
We don't have to go into space to find God. You don't have to get on a spaceship. You don't have to hike up the mountain. You don't have to ascend. God descended himself in the person of Jesus Christ, and he walked among us as a man. Remember what Lewis said about God, God's relationship to the world being more like an author, his relationship to a play? That's still true. But what's different here is that God wasn't simply to be an invisible author. He decided to be a central character of the story and come into the middle of the play. And he came as a person of Jesus. And when we look upon him, when we see him, we see a vision of God, a God who is formless, beyond being mighty and holy, and yet a God who has condescended to love us and to bring us with him up into the heavens. Let's pray. Lord, these are weighty things, perhaps difficult thoughts to think, to reflect upon. Lord, we do pray with the psalmist, untie our hearts to fear your name. All of us are impure, None of us are worthy to ascend the mountain, to come into your presence. But Lord, we give you thanks that in the person of Jesus, you have brought to us purity. But not just that, that in the person of Jesus, you have shown us who you are. In the person of Jesus, we see your heart for us. We thank you. We pray in his name. Amen.